shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good morning, everybody. You can say a good morning. That helps. Thank you. It's good to be with all of you this morning. Um, There were a lot of announcements, a lot of things that were shared, but I have to share one more thing, just one more. And um, that has to do with our men's retreat. The information is there in the bulletin. But I just got a text this morning. And I realized how everything has been just masterfully coordinated because Albert, who is our leader on our men's retreat team, he texted me and he said, there are 23 guys signed up for the retreat. And I appreciate that, all you guys who coordinated that, because our, song, our series is called 23. 23 is my favorite number. And now it's time for the other 17 of you, at least, to register this morning. So you can pull out your phone, go to our website, click Men's Ministry. You can go ahead and register now. Our goal is to have at least 40 guys there. Uh, We're really excited about it. We're working hard on it. We have a great plan in place. But today actually is our our first deadline. So the price is going to bump up a little bit after today, this Sunday. So register, um, register this morning. If you can, register sometime today. It's a family Sunday, so kids, pull out your bulletin. I have a few things that I'm going to ask you to write down and keep track of as we're going through our sermon. And this sermon is our fourth, and it's our final sermon in our series that we've called 23, the Shepherd's Song on Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is one of the most beloved It's one of the most well-known, most read passages and memorized passages in the whole Bible. We've been talking a lot about why that is. And we've said it's because Psalm 23 has something for everyone. No matter where they are in their journey, it speaks to us. It's a psalm for every day of our lives, and it's a psalm for the whole of life. It can be read in a couple different ways. It can be read as a day in the life of a sheep. It's like a a daily diary of a sheep from beginning to end of one day. But it also can be read as the story of one whole lifetime, from the beginning to the end of the whole journey of life. And as we come to the end of the series and we come to the end of uh, Psalm 23, we're going to be looking this morning at verse 6. So if you look at Psalm 23, there on uh, page 4 in the bulletin, how Does the psalm end? How does the journey end? How does the story end in Psalm 23? The day ends in a house. How does the journey of life end? As we follow the shepherd, it ends at a house. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the grand finale, the the conclusion 
to what is probably the most beloved psalm or maybe the most beloved passage in all of the Bible, the conclusion is coming home, a homecoming. That's the title, that's the focus of our message this morning. As we look at Psalm 23, verse 6, we're going to be talking about coming home. The theme of homecoming or coming home has it's had special relevance to me um, during this part of our lives. Some of you know that we had to unexpectedly move out of our home. And so we were kind of homeless for three and a half weeks due to a water leak and the resulting mold in our house. So we were nomadic, we found a home, and we've moved in. But now it's kind of all hitting us. Every day at the end of my day, I'm like, okay, it's time to go home, and I have to go, wait, where am I going again? Every day I wake up in a new place, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. This is home now. So I've been thinking a lot about home. I've been thinking about how moving, whenever we have to move, when our lives take an unexpected turn, these questions come up. Like, what is a home? What does it mean to be truly at home? Uh, I was looking at this this week. The average American moves 11.7 times in their lifetime, about every six years. So here's where I want all the kids to participate and the adults too. How many times have you moved? Think about that number. You can write it down, kids, if you know how many different homes you've lived in, how many places you've moved. Just write down that number in your bulletin. Think about it. For me, I did uh, the thinking this week. It's been 15 homes in 10 cities. Here are the cities I've lived. Diamond Bar, Walnut, Brea, Los Alamitos. That's the OC. San Diego, Carlsbad, and Tustin, Orange County again. I've also lived in Florida, Jacksonville, Orlando, and Gainesville. When I was counting, I don't know if you've got your number, if you've counted and you've written it down on paper, but as I was counting, I was like, wow, that's way more than I even thought it would be. I was surprised that my number was 15. In contrast to this, have you heard the story of Edith Macefield? I wonder if you have heard that name. In 1952, Edith Macefield, she bought a home for $3,750. That's crazy enough, that fact right there. She bought that home in Seattle. She named the home. It was called the Whitewood Cottage. And the area around her home over the years began to be developed. And one by one, the houses and the properties were were bought out and the land around began uh, to be developed. So they were bulldozed and things were built in their place. But, But Edith held out. And then in 2006, she was offered $1 million dollars to sell the home that she bought for $3,750, but she refused the money. She said, no, I'm staying in my home. The Whitewood Cottage is not for sale. And when that story came out, it became kind of viral, and everybody thought of Edith as as a hero. And later on, uh, her letters were discovered after she passed away. This was when she was in her 80s in 2006. And she said this about um, the offer. She said, now I'm 85. I'm disabled. And here come the offers. I'll never give up the contentment my mother and I found here. So she did die in 2008, but the house is still there. I wanted to show you a few pictures of the house. (laughs) There's the house while things are being developed. 
And that's probably Edith's car right there in front of her home. And then one more. Here's what it looks like today. The house is still standing. You can go there. It's in Seattle. You can find it and you can visit. And it's a major tourist attraction. And in fact, more than that, in Seattle, one of the most popular tattoos is that house. You can look this up online. There's a tattoo of that house, and underneath that tattoo or on top of that tattoo, it says the word steadfast. People are so inspired by the fact that she did not sell out. Why is it so inspiring? This is a story about home. This is a story about how home is more important than whatever money can buy. It's about the contentment and the rest that comes when we have that sense, I'm truly at home. So we can keep moving. We're kind of torn. We can keep moving and searching for home. We can stay in one place for our whole lives or for 50 years. But both the restless search for the right home and the thought of living and dying in the same house for all of our days, they point, they both point to something we're all looking for something we long for our whole lives. It's a place that we, we can dwell in, a house that we can live in forever, a forever house. Psalm 23, 6 says, There is a homecoming like this for all who trust in, for all who follow the good shepherd. This is where the journey ends with coming home. So we're going to look at three things about verse 6 what it says to us about coming home. First, we're going to look at how it tells us we're not home yet. Secondly, we're going to see how this passage tells us we will get home. And thirdly, what happens when we get home? We're not home yet. We will get home. And what happens when we get home? In verse 6, the perspective of the psalm shifts. Look at verse 6 with me. And really look at the whole psalm. In verse 1, we see, the Lord is my shepherd, present tense. He lets me lie down, present tense. He leads me. He restores me. In verse 4, the psalmist says, you are with me. Your presence is with me. You prepare a table. You anoint me. My cup overflows. It's all present tense. And most of Psalm 23 is about things that we can affirm about God in the present tense. No matter where we are in the present moment, no matter the circumstances of our lives, we can turn to Psalm 23, whatever's happening, and in the moment, it's meant to give us rest and contentment and joy knowing that God is with me, and we can make sense of what He's doing in the present moment. But in verse 6, there's a shift, the tense shifts to the future. And there the psalmist David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall or will follow me, and I shall or I will, future tense, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So from the perspective of the psalmist and and from the perspective of us who are reading it and praying it, he's not home yet. The sheep is on the journey. The shepherd is guiding. The shepherd is providing. He is protecting. He is caring. But home is future. Home is in the future. I think a large part of the power and the appeal of Psalm 23 is that the ending here in Psalm 23 gives language, it gives voice to something we all experience, to something we all look for and long for that every human being feels, no matter how much we love our house that we live in now, no matter how settled we might feel in the city we live in, 
whether we move 10 times, whether we live in the same house our whole lives, we, none of us, can escape a feeling of homesickness, this sense of nostalgia, a sense in our bones that we're not home yet. And we're all looking for a, a place like that, a place of rest, a place of refuge, a place where we can say, this is it. This is where I was meant to be. This is the place I was meant to be forever. Psalm 23, along with the rest of the Bible, gives us a reason for this homesickness that we were made to be at home, but we're not home yet. One of my um, favorite authors J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he has uh, a quote. He was writing to his son, his son Christopher, and this is what he said about our longing for home. It's on the screen. This is how he articulates that longing, that search for home. Certainly, he says, there was an Eden on this unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. And Tolkien is saying there, there had to be a perfect home at some point because we're all on the hunt for it. We all remember it. We're all searching for it. Maybe more than ever, I don't know, we're obsessed with homes and obsessed with houses. I was at the gym and I was reminded of this because HGTV was on and... It was a show that I hadn't heard of before or seen before. It was uh, Island Hunters. So not only is there house hunters and international house hunters and desert flippers and flipper flop and fix it or leave it or whatever it is. I don't even think that's a show. Fixer upper, that's the one. Now there's even Island Hunters. And we love those. I love those shows too. Because you, people are given or they find or they're searching for their dream home. And it taps into something into us. I want my own island too. Then I'll be at peace. Then I'll have rest. And we can be blessed to live in the most perfectly planned and manicured home, in the best and the cleanest suburb in all of the world, which is Irvine, right? And you still can't shake it. That's the promise of suburbia. We live in a county of suburbs. Each one of these cities was started with a dream, this suburban dream of a home. Move here. You'll find home. When we don't feel at home in the present, sometimes we want to look backward. There's that nostalgia. We look backward maybe to the, to the place where we grew up in, the place that we came from. But have you ever gone back to the home that you grew up in? And had the chance to, to look around. This happened, this happened to me. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. And you go back and you have all these memories and you, you show up and you're like, oh, I didn't know the yard was that small. You go, oh, I don't, I don't remember that. Everything seems so small and so different. And everything around here has changed. It doesn't feel like home anymore. We can't go backward to find home. We can't find it here. Ultimately, Psalm 23 says... It's future. Our home is future. It's at the end of the journey. In this life, we'll always feel a sense of sojourning and homesickness and nostalgia, this sense that we're not home yet. It's meant to point us beyond, as Ecclesiastes said, God has set something in our hearts. It's eternity. And that's the future home that we're meant for. 
So the next question to ask after when is home, the psalm says it's, it's at another time, it's at a future time, is where is home? Where is home? If home is not here, where is it? Look at the last sentence of the psalm. David says in the final conclusion, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He says, my true home is God's house. Well, what is that? What is God's house? In one sense, God dwells everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. He's there in the valley. He's in the pastures. That's true. But that's not what verse 6 is referring to. It's referring to a very specific place, a very specific home that God has. And David, in his time, is referring to the tabernacle, the portable but central place of worship for the nation of Israel. It's the place of God's special presence, the place God dwells in all His glory. It was the place for worship and prayer and sacrifice. But that's a little puzzling because no one actually lived in the tabernacle, and later the tabernacle became the temple, and no one actually lived there full time. So what is David saying? Most scholars and commentators, and I'm convinced, uh, believe David is saying this. He's saying, I'm most at home in God's presence, the place where my sin, my sin and my shame is covered and forgiven, where barriers are removed between me and God. It's a place where I'm accepted and welcomed by Him. It's a place of worship and prayer, of relationship with Him. Home. What is a home? It's not just a building. It's not a place. It's a place for relationship. And God's house is a place of relating to Him where he is enjoyed and known. So for us, application, our longing for home, our search for home cannot ultimately be fulfilled in any particular place, but it's only fulfilled in a presence. It's only fulfilled by a person, by God himself. We can live in a mansion on the beach on our own island, but without God's presence, it will be empty. It will not be home. Because home is a place of welcome and communion with God. So we're not home yet. But verse 6 says we will get home. We will get home. If you look back to the beginning of verse 6, there it says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. David, there he says, surely. In the Hebrew, it's an exclamation. He's saying, surely these things are true. I know it. These are, there are two things here. He says, I can absolutely count on. I can bank on no matter what's happening in my life. When life is good and when life is quiet and when life is dark and when life is hard and I have no idea what's happening, he says, there are two things, surely, that will be true about my future. All my days, every single day, I know these two things will be true about every day that I ever will live. The first thing is, I will be followed by God's goodness and mercy. The word here for follow most often is translated pursue. And it's most often used when enemies are pursuing another army. They're pursuing it. They're hunting them down. They're chasing after it. I think that's the best translation, that I will be pursued, chased by God's goodness and mercy. Goodness speaks to God's intention to bless us, to do good for us, to work for our ultimate good and benefit. But what about mercy? Okay, mercy. 
And here's where I need you kids to, to engage here. Mercy is one of the most important words in the Old Testament, probably the most important word in the whole Old Testament. I've been teaching you the last three family Sundays. I've been teaching you different languages. So just to review, I taught you the word panta. That meant all things. That's in Greek. And then the last family service Sunday, I taught you guys about splankna. You remember that? Splankna. That's the gut and the bowels. You can't forget about the splankna. So we've got a new word for today. Those were two Greek words. I'm going to teach you Hebrew. Here's the word. The word is chesed. Practice it. You've got to say cha. Chesed. Chesed. This is one of the most beautiful words. You could sum up the entire Bible with the word chesed. Mercy doesn't do it justice. You cannot translate this word. It's untranslatable. How can we, what can we say about it? It's God's faithful love. It's his covenant love. It's his unfailing love. It's his loyalty and his commitment to us that cannot be broken or stopped. That is chesed. That's the word that's used here. David is saying, I will be pursued by God's good intentions and by God's chesed. Every day, no matter what's happening in the day, these things are guaranteed about my future. I cannot and never will be able to outrun God's goodness and faithful love. I can't escape them even if I wanted to. In fact, when I think I'm going my own way and doing my own thing, or maybe God is just leaving me alone or he feels absent and I'm just confused, God, what are you doing? David says, surely, even then, God's goodness and God's mercy, his faithful love, if I just look behind me, I'll realize he's chasing after me. He's pursuing me. That's the first thing David says. We can be sure about the future. The second thing he says is we, can, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, I will get home. We will get home. I'm not there yet, but I surely will get there. I'm on the way. Whatever's happening now is a part of God getting me there. It's a part of his good plan. It's a part of his loving faithfulness to take me from where I am today to home. So these are two things we can count on. We can be absolutely sure about. When you have that peace, when you have that rest and confidence and boldness even of being certain that these two things are true, then nothing can shake you. Nothing can undo you. You can be content in anything. This is what Paul is describing in Philippians 4 when he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's contentment. That's rest and confidence, no matter what the circumstances are in our lives. In order to have that, we just have to say, surely, surely, to confess it, to believe it with confidence. But saying surely is so hard, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy when there's quiet waters and, and we're in a place of pasture. But when things get hard and difficult and we don't understand what's happening, a 
especially in times of homesickness, when we feel lost, when we feel alone, when we feel confused by God, when we feel abandoned, when we're doubting, then inside of our hearts these questions arise, how can I be sure God is good? How can I be sure God is loving and faithful to me? I don't feel it and I don't see it. And God knows how hard it is for us to get to the surely in verse 6. He knows the chief strategy of sin and evil and Satan is all one, really. It's to plant a seed of doubt in our hearts, of unbelief, of uncertainty, to keep us from saying surely and instead to say maybe. Maybe He isn't good and loving. Maybe I'm on my own. Maybe God is just holding back something good and something loving. Maybe I need to take things into my own hand. This is why Jesus picks up the language of Psalm 23. He does it in a couple places, but he does it very directly in John chapter 10. He takes up the language of Psalm 23 to address our struggle, to say surely, to address our unbelief and our doubt. In John chapter 10, he says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's saying, I'm good. I came to give you life abundant. And I'm faithful. I will give you my life to show you. You can't escape from my love. How far will God go to pursue us and to chase us? In Jesus, he shows us. God says, I will go into the valley of the shadow of death and hell to find you and to rescue you and to bring you back. I will lay down my life. When we can't say surely, we look to Jesus. There's a logic here. There's a logic in John 10. There's a logic of the gospel that we need to understand. And that is this. If Jesus would leave his eternal home, his place of joy with his Father, come as the Lamb of God, be born not in a home but in a barn, live as a homeless man throughout his life, descend to the deepest and the darkest and the farthest place that you could ever be from God his Father, to a place of judgment and death, if he would do that for us, then won't he give us everything else we need to get us home on the journey? The logic is this. If I have gone this far to get you, you can trust me to bring you all the way home. It's the same logic the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 8 when he addresses our struggles and our doubts. In verses 31 and 32, if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 8 because I want to show you a few things here. In Romans 8, Paul is talking about suffering. He's talking about times when we struggle and we doubt and we have no idea what God is doing in our lives. He says in verses 31 and 32, if God is for us, he's using logic here, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son, the greater gift, will he not with him grant us everything? And then in verse 35, he says, what can separate us then from the love of Christ? Affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword. Verse 36, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. That part's that part just leapt out to me as I was reading it. I never noticed the connection to God the shepherd and us being his sheep until 
really this morning when it just popped out from Romans 8. The psalmist there, Paul in Romans 8 is quoting Psalm 44. And what the psalmist is saying in a, in a prayer of lament, he's saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing. It seems like you've abandoned me. I thought I was your sheep and you were the good shepherd, but it seems like you're leading me to death. It seems like you've abandoned me. What does Paul say in verse 37? The first word of verse 37 is no. No. None of those things can separate us from the love of God. God will never abandon his sheep because he has given his son for his sheep. So no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on to say, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's the logic of the gospel. We need to apply that logic to our hearts because we operate often with a different logic. The logic that says, as long as I'm being good and faithful, good things will follow me. If I'm being good enough and faithful enough in life, then God will bless me. As long as I live a good enough and faithful enough life, then I'll be welcome into God's house forever. Paul says, Jesus says, Psalm 23 says, that's the wrong logic. That's not the gospel. He is the good and faithful one. Even to those who are not, not even our unbelief, not even our doubt, can separate us from his love. Even the doubters, those who struggle to say surely, he searches out the lost sheep, those wandering from home. He puts us on his shoulder and he rejoices every time we repent. Every time we realize, God, it's so hard for me to say surely, I'm turning back to you, he rejoices and he brings us home. We're not home yet but we will get home. Lastly and finally, when we get home. Psalm 23, it gives away the ending of all the stories of those who follow the Good Shepherd. It's like a spoiler alert. Because the vantage point for, for Psalm 23 is David, he's looking over his entire life from beginning to end. And he says it all makes sense now. Because he can see how it all ends. But for us, in the middle of our lives, when we don't see the ending, we don't see the future, it's a lot harder. We lose sight of the ending, and we often are in a place where we're saying, God, I don't understand what's happening now. I don't know how the future is going to play out. Why this path? Why that valley? Why this way? We can't see it at the moment, how God has pursued us and chased us in all that's happening in our lives. But David is saying, when we get home, when we get home, we'll understand and we will see. We'll fully understand that he was the one who gave us, gave us the gifts of pasture and quiet waters. He was guiding us all along in the right paths. He was calling us back to him. We'll understand why he led us through those valleys. And we'll see how he was always with us in them. We'll look back at our journey and we'll say, well, how did I get here? It's because of the goodness and the mercy of God pursued and chased me here. 
I can see it now, you behind me, you pursuing me, you chasing me. And what I thought was bad for me, you turned it around and worked it for my ultimate good. When I thought I was alone, you were actually there pursuing me and chasing me. The best biblical example of this is the life of Joseph. Some of you may know the story. Joseph had a very hard life. He was the privileged son of his father, but that earned him the wrath of his brothers who sold him into slavery. And his life plays out one tragedy after another. It seems like everything's going okay, only to crash back down again. Sold into slavery, slavery, wrongly accused, languishing in prison. At every point along Joseph's journey, he could have stepped back and thought, where are you? What is happening? This is not good. This is bad. This is bad happening to me. How is God faithful and good? And Joseph probably wrestled with those very questions. But at the very end of his life, in Genesis 50, he looks back at the end of the story, how it all played out. And he says the famous words from the Joseph story, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To preserve our family. All along the way, what God was doing was working character in Joseph. He eventually, through Joseph, saved that part of the known world from famine. He brought reconciliation to that family that was very broken. God worked good from that which seemed bad. But only from the vantage point of the end could Joseph see it. When they all got home, when they were all gathered together, they could say God was working for good. One commentator compares goodness and faithfulness here, goodness and mercy, to God's sheepdogs. The thing about sheepdogs is they bark at sheep, and the sheep are really scared of the sheepdogs, and that's a good thing. So they're frightened, and they're running away. They might even nip the, the sheep or bite the sheep. They'll do anything to keep them on the right path. And at the moment, the sheep are thinking, you are my enemy. You are chasing me. What is wrong with you? I'm freaked out by you. But the dogs are chasing them home. It's like God's goodness and mercy. One of my favorite stories of all time in literature is called The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. Has anybody read that story? If you haven't, you should. The main character in the story is named Shasta. And like Joseph, Shasta had a very hard life. He was raised by a cruel master. He had... Uh, been found in a boat that just washed up ashore. This cruel man found him and raised him. And then this cruel man sold him into slavery. Sounds kind of like the Joseph story. But there he met a talking horse, and with this talking horse he escaped. And he was sent on a mission. He went on this adventure, but his adventure was full of all kinds of trouble. He was chased by lions he was led in, in that chase by lions into this tomb, this uh, land of tombs and graveyard. He was freaked out and, and frightened and scared. The lions came back. They kept chasing him and chasing his horses. And there's a point at the very end of the story, towards the end of the story, where he has to make a choice between two roads. There's one road that seems easier. He goes up the harder road, up the mountain, and it's freezing cold. And he's shivering. And he's like, here I go again. I've chosen the wrong path. And here's what he says. I do think I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for other people, but not for me. And he's just weeping. Have you ever thought that? 
everything's going right for everyone else, but what about me? And then this presence comes beside him. And this presence says to him, tell me your sorrows. So he starts telling his whole story of suffering to this presence. I never knew my father. I've been chased by lions. And it turns out that this presence is the Christ figure in the Narnia series, the lion Aslan. After he's done telling him his story, the lion Aslan says, I was the lion. I was the lion that forced you to join your companion on this journey. I was the cat who comforted you when you were scared in the tombs. I was the lion who drove the jackals away that were surrounding you. I was the lion who chased your horses to drive them so that you would escape and make it to the end of your journey. I was the lion who pushed the boat where you lay as a child near death where you could be found. The next morning, Shasta wakes up. He realizes he's in Narnia where he'd been trying to get his whole life, his true home. And then he says, what luck I've hit. And then he stops and goes, well, at least it wasn't luck at all, really. It was him. It was him. How would you feel if you knew a mighty, invincible presence was following you everywhere, was directing your path from the beginning of your life to the end of your life? Psalm 23, 6 says, it's true. Jesus, the good shepherd, he and his faithfulness and his goodness is pursuing and chasing you, and he will bring you home. Let's rest in that. Let's say surely, not because of anything that we do, because of him. It's him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you know our hearts. You know how deeply we long for home. You know how we often feel so alone and not at home. And we thank you that we can have great confidence and great contentment knowing that although we're not home, you will get us there. And so I pray, I pray for each one of us that wherever we are on our journey, however far or how close we are to being able to say surely that you would meet us, that you would drive deep into our hearts all that you have already done for us to show us your goodness and to prove your faithful love for us. Forgive us our doubt and our struggles with, with uncertainty. Move us out from that place and help us stand in a place where we know that you will get us home, that you will welcome us and you will receive us with joy. We thank you that we can count on this, that it is true, that it is unshakable because of all that has been done for us by Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. Would you all stand with me? We'll close with a final.